exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Well, it's the first Tuesday of the month, which means it's not exposure, it's exposure. And this is Dr. D sitting in for Emily tonight, who's out there practicing. I shouldn't say practicing. She is performing. Her vocal cords are in full operation tonight. She's seeing choir somewhere. So Emily asked if I would host. And I'm glad to host because this is impact. And we're excited because it's exposure tonight, right? Definitely. Last 2010. We have a full panel tonight, and we have a special guest who been trying to get on for a couple of years now, but she's been too busy. So let's go around and introduce ourselves. Uh, my name is Andrew Poole. I'm uh, a uh, health educator at Olin Health Center. I'm Erica Filipich, also, also a health educator at Olin Health Center. I am Kara Gabris, a sexual health advocate at Olin Health Center. Marie Bonet, also a sexual health advocate at Olin Health Center. And I'm Dr. Tina Tim, a faculty member in the School of Social Work here at MSU. And we've been wanting to have Dr. Tim on for some time, but Andrew, I see that hesitation. I mean, you haven't been on the show since you got married. Is that that's what happens when you get married? <laughs> oh, yeah. Think? You kind of go, <laughs> you kind of go brain dead. You want, you want to talk about the honeymoon a bit first before we start off here? or, or? Uh, The honeymoon was awesome. Um, being married is great. And uh, Andrew is listening, no isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if she's listening. She might be listening. She knows that, though. So you don't want to talk about the, the uh, honeymoon too much, do you? Uh, I've got. No, we can talk about the honeymoon all day. <laughs> <laughs> it, this, this, it was nice and warm down there. It's, it's freezing up here. So. It is cold up here. We, we're going to be talking about sex in the cold, frigid north, right? Uh, it is exposure, and we have a uh, our special guest tonight. But our number here is four three two three eight nine three, and we do have a prize pack, don't we, Marie? Heck yes, what, we have prize what, pack. What's the complimentary <laughs> prize pack tonight? The the holiday prize pack. The Tell holiday us about prize it. pack definitely will include a World AIDS Day ribbon in honor of last week on December first. We had World AIDS Day, and the Olin Sexual Health Advocates put together. Um, the vigil on campus and you may have saw us in the state news um it went really well but also in the prize pack plus the ribbon we have flavored condoms flavored lube regular well assorted condoms and the sexual etiquette 101 book naturally also, which has pictures yes right. pictures Good for any stocking stuffer, definitely. <laughs> stocking stuffer, and, and, and our flavor of the of the month to honor Andrew in his honeymoon is pina colada, right? Oh, we have the pina colada, blue flavor. Right? Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we know you're enough. We know you're. We know you're down on the island, sir. But if you do call in, you will you will receive this complimentary prize pack that Maria has put together with the mm-hmm. holiday items and the sexual etiquette 101. Is four three two three eight nine three. And any call tonight, we're not going to have a question with any call in tonight. And you may have calls for our, our special guest tonight. But just a little bit going back, uh, Marie, about uh, World AIDS Day. It was mm-hmm. on December first, right. and uh, what was it all about? I mean, what what was the purpose of doing World AIDS Day? The purpose of World AIDS Day was to uh, basically bring just bring it up to students, have them aware of it, um, what 
things are happening on campus um, surrounding HIV and AIDS. Um, also, um, in the Lansing area as well, different services that are available for people that are coping um, with HIV and AIDS. Uh, so, and we, it went really well overall. Um, Kara also helped out with that, so maybe she can mention something else as well. Well, you did a vigil, right? Yeah, Over at yeah. the Rock? Yeah. Yes, and actually we had a good turnout. It was really snowy, so usually um, that doesn't get a lot of people there, but um, we had a decent turnout, and we also had a really good discussion, too, at The Rock. Mm -hmm. So I thought it went really well overall. And I know that we had walk-in testing day, walk too, testing. Erica. Did we have quite a few people come in? We did. Walk? About 16, 17. Okay. So. Which was good over, like, four, five four hours. hours. Four hours, mm -hmm. yeah. And if, so, you, if you still do, uh, Olinda's offer HIV uh, testing, all, counseling. All year. All year Not round. So, and it, it is uh, complimentary. You can come into Olin and receive the, the testing. Complimentary and anonymous. And anonymous. Mm -hmm. And we'll be starting to schedule appointments for that uh, in January very soon here. So. And I think part of the reason for Well Ladies Day is to continue to keep in the minds of everyone that HIV, no matter what types of, of uh, successes we've had in treatment of HIV, is still here. It's still, still present and it, it still can be transmitted. And so we don't want people to take it for granted. You know, we've heard quite a few, a lot of discussion lately about, you know, people not having HIV because it's in undetectable levels and it's because of the treatment that we now have that it's not at undetectable levels, but that doesn't mean that the virus is, is not still here and not prevalent. So we still have to, to bring it to awareness of people. Well, you guys did a good job. Mm. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. And Marie, Marie didn't say they're on the front page of the state news. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the snow at the vigil made for good pictures. Yeah. I saw it, was, that. it was really pretty. Good job, good job. 432-3893, uh, please keep Rob busy. Rob's in there looking bored, so please call Rob <laughs> with a question. But I, I didn't say anything else, Rob. I'm keeping you on the good side tonight. Okay. Our, our special guest, who I've known for several years now, who, who actually... Uh, uh, kind of took over a course that I once taught, the the human sexuality in the family. Uh, I don't know what it's called now. Same. Yeah, it's still called Same that. title. Okay. Uh, and we wanted to have her on the program for some time. And I, I said this before we started, so how should we refer to you? And, I th and, and we thought, well, you know, Dr. Tim would be good. But you know, I thought Dr. D and Dr. T, we could DT, but then DT <laughs> has a bad sound to it this yes. time of the year. So we're just going to refer to you as Dr. Tim. You know, uh, what do you do, first of all? I mean, what, what is it that, why did we want you to have, have you on the program? Oh, well, that's a good question. No, I'm actually really excited to be here, and uh, I appreciate the invitations that mm -hmm. you've extended and apologize about all the times that uh, you did invite me and I wasn't able to join you, but I'm very happy to be here tonight. Um, I love to take advantage of opportunities like this because I think the, the more information we get out there about sexuality, about healthy sexuality, about how to have that be a fulfilling part of people's lives is really exciting. And so there's a variety of different ways that I do that to try to help to get the word out. Um, I teach a couple of classes on campus. One is the undergraduate class that you mentioned, um, which is HDFS uh, 445. Instructors do rotate through that, and I'm not teaching it this year. Um, but I also teach therapists how to be sex therapists, and that's the class that I will teach in the spring. Um, and that's a, a doctoral course. 
Um, and it's usually pretty small seminar style and these are people that will specialize in working with couples um, and families and we deal with a variety of different not just sexual dysfunctions and the treatment of those but a variety of different sexual issues including um, LGBT issues, um, people struggling with orientation, questioning, um, transgender issues, dealing with affairs, sexual compulsivity. So really the class covers a wide range of of topics. In addition to that, I also do maintain a small private practice in the community and specialize in sex therapy. So I, the question would be, and you can jump at any time, is why would you want to be a sex therapist? I mean, <laughs> why would anyone want to get into that? Um, to drive my parents crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so they can yeah, go to dinner parties and say, what does your daughter do? Well, um, no. It, she teaches health. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what my parents exactly. um, No, it, it was interesting. Uh, when I was in undergrad, I started doing very similar things to some of the, um, the people on the panel and um, worked in a sexual health center and did contraceptive education and programming. I was uh, leaning toward going to graduate school at that time and got involved in an organization um, called ASECT and maybe mm -hmm. you talk about that mm -hmm. organization sometimes on this program. And they are very nurturing of students and I started going to some of their trainings and conferences and workshops and really was just drawn to the profession. And then when I, I did my master's degree, I took a sex therapy class, and then that was it. It was, I was hooked for good. And I like it that it's, uh, it's a topic that um, people really want to learn more about. Um, they have a lot of questions about it, and yet it still has a lot of um, difficulties that people have, even though there's sex everywhere in the media and you know we kind of live in a culture where it seems like it's really out there and available but people still carry around a lot of myths and misconceptions and and I like trying to get a message out to um, create healthier kids um, related to sexuality help parents to talk about sexuality with kids um, I sit on a, the, a community board um, that oversees the sex education curriculum for Okemos schools and I really like having that opportunity to influence education you may not want me to get started on, on education yeah. and sex, but, but you must be the head of the dinner party. I mean, when you go to the dinner party, I mean, I, I quit going out there for a long time when I was teaching the course here because mm -hmm. people would always say, what do you do? And I'd say, well, you know, I teach sex ed. Oh, can I ask you a question? Yeah. And, and it would be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't have a lot of people that ask inappropriate questions. Mostly they're just curious. And well, you haven't been of, on this show before. Yeah, so now I'm going to field all those <laughs> questions. <laughs> Speaking of questions, you should probably throw out the number in case yeah, anybody had any questions. 432-3893, and you not only ask Dr. Tim a question, you can ask the panel a question, and you'll get Marie's complimentary holiday prize pack with Ooh. the reindeer ears sticking out of yeah. the package, right? Okay. So we can get your questions answered. And complimentary stuff. So, so what what does someone have to do? I mean, if someone was interested in becoming a sex therapist, I mean, how does one go about that? I mean, you made a decision based on some experiences, you know, and it is it is a tough subject to really talk about at times. I mean, sex is out there everywhere, as you said, but sometimes it's a really tough topic to talk about. So, mm -hmm. if somebody was interested in 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 pursuing a career in sex therapy, what do they need to do? Um, you do need to get a master's degree at the at the 
um, very least, that master's degree can be in a variety of different fields. Um, some people do that in social work, marriage and family therapy, um, counseling psychology. One of the things that I've always liked about the field of sex therapy is that it's so multidisciplinary. And so when you go to conferences, it, it does include all those different mental health disciplines, and it also includes um, psychology, um, psychiatry, um, OBGYNs, urologists, and so it's really um, a good group of people that all have that interest in common but come from a variety of different um, programs and disciplines. So that's nice. So you need a minimum of a master's degree in a clinical topic. And then, of course, you need to be practicing um, sex therapy and doing that under the supervision of someone who is a sex therapist. Um, you, After graduation, typically, in order to be licensed in your discipline of choice, you would need to um, practice for two years after graduation in order to be licensed and and I would not recommend that anyone go to someone to a sex therapist that isn't licensed yet just mm -hmm. because you want to make sure that there's an advanced level of supervision and training um, to actually be certified by um, the professional organization that certifies sex educators counselors and therapists you need to have um, a set number of uh, educational hours in the classroom or with in the form of workshops and you also have to do what's called a SAR which is a sexual attitude reassessment and that's a really comprehensive uh, program that allows you to uh, look at all your own values related to sexuality and expose you to things that you may be uncomfortable with so that you can kind of get to know um, where your blind spots might be where your judgments might might be and it's a really great program I've actually done a couple of them yeah, I've, again, I've probably done seven or eight SARS yeah. in my lifetime and facilitated some. And they are a great experience for anyone who wants to go into the helping yeah. profession or into into any type of work in the field of sexuality. Uh, back in the late 70s and 80s, I'm starting to date myself here, <laughs> when uh, they were done by the University of Michigan. So how does someone get referred to sex therapy? I mean, if somebody mm -hmm. was interested, I mean, how, how does that happen? And like if someone wants to see for help themselves, or they mm -hmm. want to become one, you're asking if someone. Well, no, I think I want to move into the part of, of you know people out there. Who, how do you get referred to somebody somebody for sex therapy? I mean, how does someone refer themselves to you? They just call you, or they how do they make that decision? What? Well, um, unfortunately, there's not that many sex therapists in this area, or even in the state no. of Michigan, which is really a dilemma in terms of resources. You know, I think most people, um, they go to the internet first to try to work on the issue and find out as much as they can about it first. And then when they kind of exhaust all the self-help methods, then they might start looking for someone that's a professional or has some additional training in that area. And so lots of people run across me just by Googling sex therapy and therapist or some combination of mental health um, terms and then I my name might pop up but um, you know probably one of the, the best resources for just finding um, someone who would have an advanced level of training would be through um, a website like um, ASECT and so you could go there and you can search by zip code you can search by geographical area you can search by specialty but there's lots of other see the tricky thing about sex therapy is that you don't have to be certified to practice sex therapy and you can do that work and call yourself that um, without 
having any additional letters after your name that are specific to sex therapy. So I think consumers do need to be mindful, ask a lot of good questions about where people got their training and how long they've been doing that and, and what they've done to actually constitute calling themselves that. Um, because what I was going to start to say is that there's lots of good resources for identifying mental health professionals, and some of them may specialize in certain segments of sexuality, um, working with same-sex couples or working with affairs or working with um, sexual dysfunctions. But I think you just need to be a good consumer and ask questions about what their training looks like and, and, uh, and see how qualified they really are. Well, I'm going to turn to the panel here because I know Marie and folks were excited about you coming on tonight because they wanted to ask questions also about that. So you want to start off, Marie, or I've got a list of questions <laughs> here. I can well, um, I just am also curious about, like, what you did before you became a sex therapist, like, in between your ma- or like, so you got your doctorate, where'd you get your doctorate, where'd you get your master's, all that jazz, I guess. Yeah, so kind of a brief overview of that. I I got my undergraduate degree and my master's degree in social work at the the other school, <laughs> oh, <laughs> University good. of Michigan, and um, and then I did uh, I did take uh, I did a postgraduate internship after my master's degree, and that was uh, to get all of the advanced training that I needed in sex therapy, and that was at the Masters and Johnson Institute in St. Louis, Missouri, um, which some people may be familiar with. They um, did some pretty groundbreaking research in the 1960s, and they were one of the first people to really professionalize that and really look at physiology and, and phases of sexual functioning, and so they did a lot for the profession. And actually, um, when I did that internship, Dr. Masters was still alive, mm-hmm. and I did get to work with him at that time, so it's, it was was kind of neat that I got to sneak in just before his health got too poor and he wasn't practicing anymore. So, um, and the other unique thing about that opportunity is that I, I got training in sex therapy, but also in um, sexual trauma. And that was really wonderful because a lot of sex therapy cases um, have some issues of of trauma in their history, and that's true for both men and women. And sometimes it is things like that that contribute to some of the sexual dis- difficulties that they're having. So that was a good opportunity. And then, like you were asking about, I did take a couple years off before I decided to go back and and, and get my Ph.D. And... Um, and what I was realizing is that you, I had good clinical training, and I knew a lot about sex therapy, but what I didn't have was the training in doing couples therapy. Mm-hmm. I didn't get nearly enough of that in my master's program. And to be a good sex therapist, you have to know, you have to be a good couples therapist as well. So when I was looking around at Dr. Um, you know, PhD programs. I was really drawn to the field of marriage and family therapy, and that, and I went to Purdue University, and that's where I got my PhD. And and it really was to get advanced training in couples therapy specifically, and it, it did that. Awesome. Well, you know, one of the things that was presented to me early in my training, uh, Tina, was that uh, most sex therapy is about communication and about helping the couple. Uh, communicate about their lives and about sex. How do you respond to that? I I couldn't agree more. If there was really one thing that I think leads to a healthy sex life, a uh, healthy relationship with uh, your own um, 
your own self sexually is being able to talk about it and being willing to do that and and to not um, be embarrassed or shameful about issues that are going on or things that you're worried about ask ask questions talk to each other I just yeah I couldn't agree more well, we're on the air with Dr. Tina Tim, 432-3893, and if you call in, you have a question for the panel or for Dr. Tim, you will get the, what is it, the complimentary holiday prize pack uh, filled with pina colada uh, lube and yeah. condoms and sexual <laughs> etiquette, one above one. But, you know, Marie, we were, we were kind of talking last week very briefly, and one of the questions we wanted to present to you was, what is the most common presenting problem? that you have an individual or couples come to you with? I mean, what, what do they usually come to you? They, they say, hey, it doesn't work right, or I'm not having orgasms, or is it, what is it? What's the most common thing that you usually see? Is it lack of communication? <laughs> like we were just you know, presenting people, problem. <laughs> yeah, people usually don't come in um, saying, you know, we're not talking about sex, even though that's usually a pretty obvious a part of the, the issue. Um, I would say that, oh, that's that's a tough one um, because, you know, some of it's just uh, kind of an ebb and flow. Like mm -hmm. I'll, uh, my practice kind of goes through phases where I'll see a lot of people recovering from affairs. And um, then I'll go through a phase where people are all coming in with what I call desire discrepancies, mm -hmm. which, you know, both people may be in a normal range of how often they want sex, but um, one wants a lot more of it and one wants a lot less of it. And there's just tons of conflict between the two because of that difference. So I get that. And, you know, well, I how really... Do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, desire disorders, I mean, discrepancies are probably, in my opinion, one of the toughest to treat. I mean, how do you deal oh, with somebody when they have... So complicated, and it really, it really starts with good assessment, because lack of des or you know low desire and high desire really they can stem from a multitude of different issues, um, and it can be everything from from stress to anxiety, um, and anxiety and stress they actually can. It, they affect people in different ways. So some people experiencing anxiety and, ses, and stress want to have sex more because that helps them to feel more calm. And for other people, when they're stressed and anxious, that's the last thing in the world <laughs> that they want to do. So, I mean, I, I think we see that in other areas as well. Some people get anxious and they want to eat, and some people don't eat at all. And so we get those parallels there. So really, it, it can the reasons why people want to have a lot of sex or want to have um, very little sex. There's just, there's as many, many reasons as there are people practically. Do you ever find that within a, a, a specific couple that that switches where one, where it goes from one wanting less and one wanting more to it the can. opposite? It can. Based on the different stressors and stuff? Absolutely. And Absolutely. It can, um, you know, change based on over the course of a relationship. And I also always like to dispel the myths about gender related to sexual desire because I think we often have uh, a stereotype that men always want to have sex and it's the women that would be tend to be on the low desire end of that. And for whatever reason, I, I my practice seems to get a lot of the opposite, hmm. which is women really wanting to have sex and they're, if it's a heterosexual couple, their male counterparts being the ones that are pretty uninterested. Mm -hmm. And so, 
Yeah, and I think there's a lot of pressure on men, and they have a lot of their own kind of baggage about society saying that men should always want sex and that to be a man you should be ready to go at the drop of a hat. And stress affects men um, in similar ways, and they can feel overwhelmed and or have low testosterone, or there's a number of different issues that or underlying sexual dysfunctions that they're not talking about and that make them want to avoid sex. Well, it's interesting because it's part part of the uh, back in the days when I taught the FCE 445 class and, and I teach one now at LCC. We had them do a paper called Who Am I Sexually? It's an anonymous paper and you're probably aware of it where um, actually I got the idea from Bill Masters and Virginia Johnson mm -hmm. way, way, way back then. And they would they would write about their, their sexuality before the class starts. And in these papers, probably 60 to 70 percent of them, you find a lot of wounded students who through, through their lives have either faced either sexual abuse or assault or religion has played a, a, an impact on and stuff like that. And so you get a lot of students who are coming to college already with the wounds of, of, a, of a, uh, life in general, uh, some, somewhat pertaining to sexuality attempts. How, how do we talk to those students? How do we get those students to look past that? How do we get students to deal with that, that kind of stuff? Mm, um. I'm a big proponent of um, if you know an issue like that is going on for you or if it's affecting your relationships or your ability to kind of maintain relationships, to really get some help for that. That, you know, obviously because of my training, I'm a big supporter of counseling and therapy, and it doesn't mean that you have to make a long commitment to that. Sometimes it only takes, mm -hmm. you know, six to eight sessions to kind of unpack that and figure out what's going on for you and where you might have gotten some of those messages and if, if you want to make different choices about some of those messages that you might have gotten in your family of origin or um, look at how religion has played a part in that. Now with issues, I mean the more severe the injury or the abuse or the trauma, you know, you'd probably be looking at more time than that potentially because some of those things can really damage people and how they think about themselves and how much um, they can trust in relationships. But I guess, yeah, the overall message would be to not suffer in silence. Because okay. life's too short. Do you think it's sometimes when people don't even realize some of the stuff that happened in their past and they need to have that conversation? Yeah. Is that more often? I mean, because I think that's the way it's often portrayed in the media. Like if you watch a TV show... Uh, a movie where they, they kind of have a dramatic take on it, it's often presented that way. Is, is that sort of the general? That something could be kind of operating under the surface and they're not even sure right. what that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think lots of times people walk around and they are in denial or just kind of unaware of how some things are affecting them and mm -hmm. you know certainly with my family therapy training we do spend a little bit of time looking at the environment in which they grew up and their family of origin and some of the messages that they got coming down through the generations about sexuality and that's a, an assignment that I have mm -hmm. um, people do especially in advanced clinical classes they have to do kind of a sexual um, family tree of sorts and they uh, we call them genograms but essentially they're intergenerational look at sexual issues sexual secrets um, who was sex positive who was sex negative who had um, you know what did they learn about sex and when did they learn it and um, looking at all kinds of issues and people have lots of light bulb experiences about that and not necessarily things that they didn't know but they never put the pieces together and said wow you know I didn't realize that 
you know, there was a history of affairs in my family, and maybe that's why I have trouble being faithful to partners, or that's why I pick people who aren't faithful to me. And and I think whenever you take something from the unconscious to the conscious, people have more freedom to make choices about how they want to be and if they want to continue that pattern. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's part of the process I think is so helpful about therapy is that people get to kind of work that through. And by talking about it with someone else, they have those they have those light bulb moments. Well, this is Dr. D on Sexposure on a cold Tuesday night. It's halfway through the show already. It seems like we're just sitting here and, and it's, it's flying by. Mm-hmm. 432-3893. We're sitting here with Dr. Tina Tim talking about sex and everything else. Everything else. <laughs> uh, please call in. Uh, 432-3893. You'll get the complimentary prize pack, uh, the holiday prize pack. You know, one of the questions Marie wrote down here, and, and, and I don't know how to phrase it, but I'm just... Can I just come out and ask, as a, as a sex educator, as a sex therapist, as someone who is in this field, what is the most common question you get about sex? Oh, you know, people, they typically want to know this, the the sexual techniques that are just that lead to mind-blowing sex like I, I kind of get those well, types of those. questions <laughs> what are those mind-blowing well, techniques yeah no. <laughs> well that's the funny thing it's not about techniques okay. it's about connection yes connection that's built over you know long-term intimate relationships and you know some of the national research really shows that to be true. We all we all have these kind of, uh, especially people that are in long-term committed relationships, think, oh, the singles, they're out there having all the fun and having all the wild sex and you know get to do whatever they want. And and actually, the national research shows that people in long-term committed relationships are usually have more sexual satisfaction than the um, single people. And I think that there's really a lot of um, yeah, the longer people are together, the more intimate the connection can be, and that leads to better sex. And it's not about the simple techniques. So you get more questions about uh, how to be in a healthy relationship or how to make a relationship mm-hmm. grow than you do about sexual technique or the length of a penis well, or how many orgasms she's had. Well, that's, that's, that's the dilemma. I think people want to come in and get the magic fix, and they want the fast thing, and they want to know uh, if you just you know tell me what the secret is to multiple orgasms or how to... Uh, you know, just be a better lover in that kind of generic way. And it's just not quite as easy as that. It is um, more complicated that you can learn all the techniques in the world, but if you don't like yourself, if you don't like your body, if you've got issues related to sexuality that you're not able to talk about, that no matter how many techniques you know, I don't think you'll be a very good lover. Um, I have a question. Yeah. (laughs) So, um... When I always think of sex therapists, I always think of the movie Meet the Fockers. Oh, sure. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I always think of the, um, what is it, the guy's mom, um, sex therapist, and Mm -hmm. she has all these mats out and is always teaching people, like groups of um, couples. You've been watching too much real sex (laughs) on HBO, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, do you ever do stuff like that where, like, or is that just, like, 
No. That's, that's not at all what sex therapists do. Okay. And it doesn't do the profession any good to have <laughs> examples like that out there that are kind of kooky and they're not really about it scares what people happens. Away. It does. Yeah. I do, yeah, I mean, who wants to go and... It's like Lamaze class, but worse. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen the movie, but I remember thinking, what? Yeah. You know, that's, that's not at all that's accurate. And so... Yeah, I'm always trying to educate people what sex therapy is because I think there are a lot of myths and misconceptions about what that is. You know, some people have heard about sex surrogates and 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 they wonder if that's what a sex therapist is and so I'm really clear about sex therapy doesn't involve physical contact at all whatsoever. Um we do it's a very behavioral um type of therapy, meaning that we send people home to do exercises in the, the safety and comfort of their own home, and those are diagnostic, and they help us. They come back in, and they talk about what happened and how they felt, and and um, and we process that, and that tells me as a sex therapist what I need to do and how I need to help them next. So, um, so yeah, there's no touching whatsoever in sex therapy. <laughs> And yeah, I I don't own any mats <laughs> whatsoever, and um, yeah, I. But so you I, don't I do have f- candles and a Kama Sutra. No, no, okay. it's really much more boring than that. <laughs> I think people are sometimes pretty disappointed to find out that it's it's really. A good couples therapist who has a lot of training about sexuality. So, if someone was to come in, what would what would they expect from the first session? I mean, would they expect you to do a history? Would they expect you just to communicate with them? What would they expect? You know, we back when I was training, it was the Plicit system. You know, mm-hmm. Permission, limited mm-hmm. information, specific suggestions. Can you talk a little bit about what somebody would expect to come in if they came in to see you or somebody else? Well, I think that they don't know what to expect. And so there's a lot of fear associated with it. And so I always start with asking them, uh, how they how they feel about being there mm-hmm. right now, and some are excited about starting on a process of healing, and others are scared to death. And you always have the instances where uh, people are being dragged in by their ear or mm-hmm. under a lot I of want you to fix duress. The yeah, a lot of um, and people that are really at the brink of not sh- not sure if they want to continue the relationship because this has been such a painful issue that they haven't been able to fix on their own. So um, you got to find out where they are and how they came to be sitting in your office, first of all. And um, I do a very thorough assessment early on, and that involves talking to them as a couple to hear what they have to say about why they're there. I, of course, want to watch their interaction and see how they do uh, with each other and how they talk about it in the presence of the other person. And then I typically do, do have an individual session with each one of them to see, um, to do kind of an individual history, find out about their family of origin, find out um, how they how they came to be the sexual person that they are, bring them back together and talk about, kind of summarize for them, do what Masters and Johnson used to call a round table, which is kind of laying out everything that you learned in the assessment and saying, this is this is what I know, this is this is how I think it's um, come to be in your relationship, and this is what we're going to do to try to help. But, um, you know, that said, I, I would say that intervention begins in that the, the very first minute that they sit down. I'm trying to comfort them. I'm trying to normalize some of the fears that they have, let them know that, um, that this is hard and... Um, 
that I really, uh, really honor the fact that they decided to take this step and do something about it. In terms of the Plissett model, the dilemma for me is that I, I, I operate under that model and I, I teach that model, but um, they've already done a lot of the previous steps themselves, um, and I usually only get them at the end of that model, which is at the SS part, which um, or the IT part, which is you know the intensive therapy, and I get the really hard cases people who have maybe been to couples therapy for a while and, and that helped their relationship but the sexual problem is still there. I get people that have done lots of self-help books and issues and, and things like that and nothing's worked. So I really get them at the end. And, and I tell couples, and this is a good message for the audience as well, don't wait. Hmm. The longer you wait, the harder it is on people like me. <laughs> well, I, think, I think our callers are hearing you because they're not waiting. We have a caller. Good. Caller, are you there? We have a misfunction on the board here. We'll get we'll get it yet here. Rob, it's not coming through. You want to paraphrase the caller for us, Rob, or are you just going to sit there and pantomime the whole thing? <laughs> well, let's while we're while we're trying to fix the board here and get our caller here. Caller is still on the line. Yeah. We'll try to get you, caller. Which, hold on, uh, <laughs> we will try to get you. I mean, one of the uh, uh, questions we wanted to ask you was, uh, we talked about myths, one of some of the biggest myths out there about sexuality and sexual practice. Uh, what, what do you think are some of the biggest myths about sexual mm -hmm. behavior, couple therapy? Hmm. Yeah, the one that, that pops into my head immediately is... Um, related to erectile um, issues and I do a lot of education early on in therapy about that because what starts to happen is that that people are th that men are thinking about it all the time and they think they can will themselves to have an erection and the and the myth is the, I mean what they think is the more I concentrate and the harder I try and the more I focus on it, um, the better it will be. And it's exactly the opposite. That fear and anxiety and pressure and performance, that all of those things uh, affect erections negatively. And so it's really, you got to get them 180 degrees in the opposite direction, which is to not focus on it and not think about it. And that's really hard for people to do. 432-3893. I know Rob's on the phone again. We're going to try to get these phones working here. Uh, one, one of the things that, you know, we have several folks here who have been HIV counselors, and, and we've seen, uh, we've heard quite a bit over the years, you know, and, and I get a lot of folks who come in and talk to us about being tested. And once they get a negative test, they want to talk about other things. You know, and over the years I've asked people who've come in there, you know, uh, not in a condescending manner, but, you know, when they talk about having sex, I say, you know, why is it that you're having sex? And many times I find out that women, especially women, would say, I'm not quite sure why. Hmm. I'm not sure, quite sure why I'm having sex and, and or why I'm doing it. I mean, what would you say to folks like that? Hmm. I mean, there's a lot of folks out there, I think, that aren't quite sure why they've decided to begin to be sexually active. Uh, and... Uh, we don't, uh, you're coming in to fix the board, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Looks like the caller's still there. Let's see. Yeah, hold on. 
Well, I can still talk while they're working sure. on that. My challenge would be to someone that didn't know was to really spend some time thinking about that and to uh, maybe do some journaling about that, to look at specific situations with that where they have been sexual. Um, maybe at times they have wanted to, maybe at times they were ambivalent, maybe at times that they really didn't want to, but they did it anyway because they felt um, psychologically like they, they should or they had less choice about it. So yeah, I mean, just really have some insight into um, why am I engaging in this at any particular point and and people have different kinds of sex at different points in their life and some people do sometimes have one night stands and that has a very different meaning from the type of sex that they might have in a long-term relationship and I think it's helpful for people to think about where is it easier to have sex because sometimes it is easier to have sex with someone that there's no intimacy with because it's less risky but in a long-term committed relationship where they know you and um, it's scarier to see and be seen and so sometimes I think uh, people have a harder time in more intimate relationships because they're scared and if you really give yourself to someone emotionally and sexually then they could hurt you more and people are pretty afraid of getting hurt it's easier to just kind of distance yourself from people and then if if it doesn't work out then they don't have to it's people having different reasons for having sex. Yeah, lots of different reasons for having sex. And there's been some research on that. They've surveyed people to, to ask them that very question. Why do you have sex? And there are some gender differences to that. Um, although I, I find that there's as much variation within gender as there is between gender. Mm -hmm. And I try not to do the men are from Mars and women are from <laughs> Venus part of it because I think it just puts divisions there that aren't, that aren't helpful. Well, I think even within, it's not even as simple as saying maybe that you're having sex just because of pleasure. Mm -hmm. Because even within pleasure, there could be so many different reasons. Oh, um, sure. You're looking for pleasure and intimacy, or you're looking for pleasure and fun. Right. Um, and I think based on different contexts, like we were talking about one-night stand versus being in a long-term relationship, there are different uh, right. reasons for it. And within one relationship, on different days, you have sex for different reasons. Right. Sometimes exactly. it's because you want a you know a long, intimate, connecting experience with your partner, and other times it's just you know you want to have an orgasm, and that's and that's good too. So it's never one reason. Mm -hmm. Typically, not one reason. Well, I would give you the number again, but we're having a uh, sex therapy problem with our communication board. There's no communication, so I can't get your calls. So if you want to just kind of, I can't get your emails either. So we're just going to, we're just going to continue on here. All right. Uh, but you said that, you said not the magic word, but the word that comes up a lot, orgasm. Now, one of the things that, that over the years, uh, as I've taught class, I've heard a lot of folks talk about uh, women being non-orgasmic or situational or orgasmic. Can you talk a little bit about orgasms in women? Sure. Broad topic. <laughs> just, where do I start? Right. Yeah. Um, let me start with the semantics. Mm -hmm. uh, technically, um, the, the diagnosis is called anorgasmia. But I always call it pre-orgasmic, which I think is a much more strength-based way of thinking about it, uh, because there's actually very few women that physically do not have the ability to have an orgasm. That sexual dysfunction, A, has the, the highest success rate 
it's the easiest to help with because it's usually about lack of knowledge about how the body works um, followed by a lot of insecurities about their body and being comfortable with it and usually messages that they got about whether or not it's okay to experience pleasure or to masturbate and to learn about your body in that way. So there's, uh, you know, I would say for women that aren't able to do that or haven't done that yet, that I really want to send a very hopeful message, which is that, uh, that there's, that's absolutely something that you can change. There are a um, lot of self-help resources out there. Uh, if you go to any bookstore, that there would there would be um, books on that. And I really suggest that people start there. You don't need to run to a sex therapist right away um, because any sex therapist is going to do the same thing that self-help books are going to do, which is they're going to want you to figure out your body and they're going to want you to be comfortable touching it. And essentially, they want to teach you to be able to masturbate to orgasm on your own. And then if you are partnered, to be able to um, start to communicate with your partner and include them in that experience and, and be able to have orgasms together. Now, you mentioned before as we were talking that uh, many couples or individuals seem to do the first three phases of the Plicit system. And I can understand people finding limited information, specific suggestions, but how do people come to that, that realization that they have permission to touch their own body, to, to realize that they have the right to be sexual, their right to have pleasure if they so decide? How do they come to that on their own, the permission part? That seems to be many times a place where folks get stuck is they'll actually have permission to feel this way, to think mm -hmm. this way, to do this thing. Shows like this <laughs> would be one way. I think, you know, they, they have some sense that there might be more. I mean, it's not like we don't hear about women's orgasms in the culture and in the media. And so some people have a sense that, you know, or a sense of disappointment that, maybe that they haven't done that yet um, but yeah I hear what you're saying they really need that next step which is I give myself permission to pursue this to want this to be okay I think that doctors and OBGYNs and nurse, nurse practitioners are essential on that front and that you know a, a lot of women um, you know do co go in for annual exams and and that uh, that doctors and nurses, they really need to be asking not just about whether or not they're sexually active and going at the disease prevention model, but also be giving asking, are, do you, are you satisfied with the sexual experiences that you're having? And if not, what's that about? And to ask if they're orgasmic, because if they're not, to, to send that hopeful message, if that's something that they want to work on, that it really gives them permission to do that from a, an authority figure, from someone in the medical profession that says um, that, that that's something that they give permission for them to pursue. So sort of a more holistic approach where they kind of treat the whole body, yeah, including mentally. But that it's, it's not just about the stuff that goes wrong. Right. It's giving them permission for it to go right. 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 Well, I'm glad you started off by saying, by saying that <laughs> it's essential that they do this because it's not being done. Right. As you well know, and working in a health center and knowing and working with physicians for a long time, now many of them are very uncomfortable. I know. And there's practitioners uncomfortable about even bringing up the topic of sex, let alone asking if you have an, 
are you orgasmic mm -hmm. or do you actually uh, enjoy or receive pleasure as one of those uh, parts of, of being sexual and it is essential but it's not you know sometimes I think probably Oprah Winfrey does more to give permission than anyone probably. else does mm -hmm. in, in shows like this and right. that's why we talk right. about it but still I think there's a lot of folks out there who don't necessarily feel that they have that permission yet right. you know you go ahead no and I'm just we talked a little bit about it in terms of you know the permission and um starting to kind of seek therapy and I'm I think there's might be a little bit of a taboo around an age in terms of when it might be appropriate to have therapy and you know I'm not a middle-aged couple that has a problem yet can you speak to that a little bit in terms of you know you said start early mm -hmm. um, and you we also know that all college students aren't having sex and they may have some issues so is is that you know too early to start um, you know is there no not at all I, I, I I think there are some college students that are already have some sense that you know something's not right or they're experiencing problems or they're avoiding sex because of anxiety related to that and and I I absolutely believe the sooner you address that um, the better I uh, I can't tell you how many times I've worked with clients who are in their 30s now who say this started in college and I really wish that I, habits, right? that I would have sought help way back then. I mean, not only because of how much more entrenched it gets, it's just they've, they've missed out on, you know, 10 plus, years. 10 plus years of their life that they could have had more fulfilling experiences. And I think that's always sad. But there's a lot of... They don't know where to go. They get hopeless about this is this is just me and this is the way I am and there's nothing that can be done to change it. None of my friends and have I think, this problem. Yeah, but I, I do think that popular sources like Oprah really help to bring awareness to issues related to sexuality. And she does such a nice job of, of um, you know, pretty frequently having topics of sexuality on there. And the guest speaker, Laura Berman, mm -hmm. who, uh, you know, has a Center for Sexual Health. And, and, and she talks about women's pleasure. And her point, which I think is very well taken, that if you see your sexual pleasure as only coming from other people, then you really give a lot of that away. And need another partner and they can be secure and make better choices about when they have partnered sex. I mean, I think there's a, there is a case to be made for that. One of the questions we had on here, and, and I know this is kind of a loaded question, but how does one increase their sexual satisfaction? You know, if we, we, can do, we can do a program, uh, we can advertise a program saying come and learn about STIs and contraception mm -hmm. and everything else, and we'll get maybe two people show up. But if we, if we host a program saying how to increase your sexual satisfaction, the room Masses. will be packed. That's right. Uh, and so I think a lot of college students wonder about that, that concept of increasing satisfaction. What would you say to college students who want to increase their sexual satisfaction? Oh, I think it's question. an overview of some of the things that we've already mentioned, which yeah, is... I was going to say, I feel like yeah, it's basically. sort of what we were just... Yeah, but we can <laughs> summarize by saying, um, know your body, be comfortable with your body, be able to communicate what feels good to you, um, two partners... Um, let me let me take one step back, because I think it's an important thing you say is know your body. What do you mean by know your body? Um, I guess it would be know your body and love your body, meaning that 
oh, I don't know. So many people just, they don't like the way they look and they worry about the, the 10 extra pounds and they, um, they can only have sex in certain positions because they're worried about how their breasts look and men get worried about their penis size and oh my goodness, there's, there's just all kinds of things that people, that get in the way of having good sex that are about us not liking our bodies. And so, I mean, I, I think over the years, the people, the, the couples, you know, that I've encountered that had the best sex lives were the ones that really, they just, they didn't, they weren't self-conscious about their body. And so that frees them up to be able to be more connected, have more fun, laugh more, just uh, experiment more. And because you're not so worried about all those other things. And how can you be connected to your partner when you're worried about what they think of you and what you think of yourself. And, yeah, I think it's a complete... Talk about myths. It's a complete myth that perfect bodies have good sex. Mm. Reminds me of the old SNL sketch, the Will Ferrell one. <laughs> They're in the hot tub. I don't know that I've seen I don't that know that one. one. Oh. What is it? Well, it, maybe some of the listeners know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. as you say, the question somewhat sums up what we've been talking about, satisfaction. And knowing your body, I think, is one of those very tough concepts for people to not only grasp but actually to have permission to touch their body mm -hmm. feel their body enjoy their body like their body i mean that's a whole new that's a whole different realm is right, it like right. your body do you like the different parts of your body and i think it's easy for us sometimes to say you know get to know yourself get to know your body but i think some people struggle with that you know because they've been given these messages all their lives you know that right. that that they're not supposed to touch themselves and not necessarily the media tells you you're not supposed to like certain parts of your body unless it's a certain way and so it's really hard for people to take that next step you know yeah. to get that to get the ideas and specific suggestions unless they can have that permission to say yeah you know it's all right it's all right to like my body yeah. and it's important for folks like you to say this and and, and students to say you know it, it's you do have permission to touch your body and feel your body and right but every time we do it we you know we cause all kinds of uh controversy i don't yeah. want to say we shouldn't listen to the media <laughs> there's so much stuff that comes out that's well, ridiculous I, I think women are really disadvantaged on that front because yeah. people don't talk about the clitoris at all yeah. and the what? clitoris <laughs> the clitoris is the equivalent of the penis it actually has more nerve endings in it mm -hmm. than than the penis does and yet even books this is this is what always amazes me even books that teach about and their primary um sex organ is talked about as being the vagina mm -hmm. um yeah i mean i think that those are a couple of places where you really can get good information well, it's been a pleasure having you on. Uh, this is our last the show for the fall semester for on Sexposure on 89FM Impact. Thank you all, and uh, happy, I hope you all have a great holiday and a break. And thank you, Dr. Toom. For yes, thanks for having me. I would love to come back when we can have callers. <laughs> happy holidays. Happy holidays. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.